But first and foremost, took me about, ooh, I'd say an hour and 10 minutes to get into work today, coming from the mighty meadows of Pitt Meadows. And uh, I looked around and I said, man, gas is a little more expensive today. Apparently, we're not even there. There's going to be another 7%, or pardon me, 7 cent jump tomorrow. So who does that affect in addition to mom and dad, you and I? Well, let's talk to Mohan Kang. He's the president of the BC Taxi Association. Mohan, good afteroon. And thanks for underwriting, sir. Let's get right to it. What does a hike in gas mean to you and all of your membership? It will be, make the uh, expenses more costlier because it is something which we can't avoid. Like a private car, you can park it and walk. But taxi being an essential service, we have to be on the road to serve the community and public at large. In previous years, when you've seen the spike in gas, even as you know, most recent as last summer, what did you hear back from your membership? What were some of the biggest challenges that they faced? Well, gas is a regular cost which they have to face every day. And... Uh, Last year, when the prices were going high up, the PT board did grant a gas surcharge under taxi limo cost index price. And previously, we had one time that was, I believe, July 2008, when the gas was going up like anything. So this time, now there's no coming down when we see the carbon tax and all those things uh, implicated with the cost of uh, gas going up. Mohan, I think I know the answer to this question, but I just want to put it to you and see what your thoughts are on this. Do you feel like you need some help from the, you know, municipalities or even, dare we say, the provincial government to try and find a way to subsidize this sharp increase? Because, again, I don't want to say that you're an essential service, but you're definitely a part of the community that there's a lot of people need. Um, do you, have you ever had help like that before? And if not, what could they do to help? The only uh, organization or government department which can help is the PT board because we simply can't raise one cent even without their permission or without the granting it. So we have brought to the attention of the PT board this issue and hoping that they would be uh, doing something about it. And you've yet to hear back in 2023? I, I, I hope so, sir. Well, that's fair enough. So, again, right now, gas up four cents today in and around Vancouver at somewhere just shy of uh, two dollars. But by the weekend, it could be as much as two five, or dare we say, two oh six. Mohan, thank you for um, giving us a couple of minutes of your time today and drawing some attention to the struggles that your taxi association has. Thank you again. Thank you, sir. Bob Fane for Jill. Happy one o'clock hour. Thursday afternoon, working towards the weekend. Apparently, we're going to get a little rain by tomorrow, which I think would be a gentle reprieve in, in this region for sure and hopefully help with that air quality. I've uh, had a couple of people reach out to us and say that it's getting a little smoggy in their areas as those fires burn everywhere from Harrison all the way up this province and really across this country. 
Well, yesterday out at Surrey Memorial Hospital, Minister of Health Adrian Dick stepped forward and announced a multi-pronged attack at helping Surrey Memorial with uh, the many challenges that they face. A lot of promises. So to talk about some of them and to break it down a little bit uh, further, BC Green Party leader Sonny Furstenau, kind enough to join me. Sonny, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, let's get right into it because uh, he was talking about doing some things down the road, some things in a couple of months, and some things he wanted to get right after. What were your first thoughts when you heard uh, Adrian Dick's uh, speeches uh, out at Surrey Memorial? Yeah, there was a lot in this, a lot of uh, promises, a lot of actions that he's talking about taking. And I, I would say that from what I can see in the list and what he talked about, a lot of them are necessary and important. Here's the thing. When I look at this, though, I think this is just how our healthcare system should be running all the time. All of these uh, measures that he's talking about are actually what we should expect from how our healthcare system operates. And what we don't want to see, which we've seen over and over again, is it's only when some part of our healthcare system is in dire crisis that we finally get a response from government and a list of actions. So it shouldn't take a million people without a family doctor before we see a response from government. And it shouldn't take the doctors at Surrey Memorial speaking out last week the way they had to for there to be an appropriate response from government. Well, let me ask you this then, because I I would agree with you in the fact that we can't be reactive. We've got to be proactive in this Mm -hmm. province if we're going to support our healthcare workers. But with that said, okay, these commitments have been made to Surrey Memorial. Uh, If we're going to start to work ahead right now, A, where would you attack? And B, if we went back to the legislature and said we need more money to get ahead of this, do you think it would be made available? So a couple of things. I think what's in this list, you know, increasing the number of medical positions and introducing interdisciplinary teams for child and youth mental health, there's a lot in this list that is is really valuable. What I want to see is an update in three months from now. How far have we gone? And then another update in six months from now, because what doesn't work is a whole list of announcements and then no follow-up on accountability for whether those have been delivered. So one, give us timelines on when these things are going to be happening and give us updates as to whether you're meeting your timeline. So there has to be that accountability built into this kind of announcement. Two, on the funding question, I think in health, when it comes to healthcare, we need to spend wisely. I don't think this is a matter of throwing more and more money at the healthcare system. I think we have to ask ourselves the questions around how much we're spending on administration and BC has added $8 billion to administrative costs in healthcare in the last six years. I think we have to really be intentional and transparent and accountable for the money that goes into healthcare being focused primarily on delivering healthcare services to people. I had a conversation with someone in the healthcare industry last night, just trying to, you know, break down a few things. And one of the things that came up was, cool, you've made that announcement, but that piece of equipment had to be ordered a year and a half ago in order for us to get it in the next year. So two things come of this, and I'm just curious to know your thoughts on this, Mm -hmm. is one, 
the announcement has been made, and hopefully this stuff is eventually going to find its way out to Surrey and away we go. Secondly, how much longer can we push back privatization? Because I know that that word is always scrutinized in a bunch of different ways. But the reality is, is even if we're dedicating this um, you know, commitment now, we're never going to catch up unless we get some assistance. Is, is that something that's inevitable or are we just going to continue to fend that off and say that we can do it ourselves? So I think it's really important to recognize, like right now, our primary care system is largely handled by family doctors who operate a private business. They are operating a small business and they get funding from the provincial government to deliver health care in a public health care system. We can see the cracks in that system. And one of the answers to that is community health centers, where we treat our primary care system far more like we treat our education system. We have the buildings and the administration covered by government and doctors, nurse practitioners, and all the allied healthcare workers are in that community health center doing what they were trained to do, which is deliver healthcare. So that's one way to address the primary healthcare system. In the, the acute healthcare system, our hospitals and our services and diagnoses, there are a lot of private providers of healthcare systems, of healthcare services that are publicly funded. I think the question we have to be asking ourselves is how do we ensure that our public health care system, the delivery of health care to people regardless of their ability to pay, is protected? And that, is the, that has to be the operating principle. When we look at uh, private health care, for example, in the United States, it is not a more efficient system. It is not a cost-saving system. It is far more costly to deliver health care in a privatized system that that focuses on delivering profits uh, to the providers and to the companies. We really have to recognize that health care is not inherently meant to be a profit-driven system. It is a human right, and we have to protect it from that lens. We already have a lot of private delivery of healthcare services, but that has to be within a very clear mandate from the public and the, the government that that is to deliver publicly funded healthcare in an equitable way to all people in British Columbia. You know, one of the things that you guys put out on behalf of the BC Greens uh, in your response to Adrian Dix and the announcements out in Surrey is you felt that you were paying too much attention to, quote, the wrong side of the solutions. Yeah, preventative health care is so much more efficient and cost-effective than waiting until people are sick. So when we have a primary care system that isn't meeting the needs of over a million British Columbians, those people are not able to access the kind of health care that prevents them from having to show up in an emergency room. It's far less expensive to our system for people to have access to primary care and particularly to community health centers than it is for them to have to wait until they're sick enough to show up in an emergency system. It's far less expensive for us to focus on public health measures that keep people healthy Uh, even an example around uh, a call that we made this spring around universal food programs in schools. Healthy food, uh, especially for children, is one way to ensure that we have a healthier population. Everything from public transportation to walkable communities to bike paths are part of public health. So we should be focusing on how do we keep people healthy 
And how do we ensure that people have that access to primary care? Because that is so much less expensive than waiting uh, until people need the acute care. And then, as you mentioned earlier, we need to be looking at the horizon on our healthcare system and asking ourselves, what steps do we need to take right now so that in five and 10 years from now, we're not facing an unnecessary crisis? We've known for decades that we have an aging population uh, with the baby boomers, and we have not proactively prepared for that. Keeping seniors at home, providing services that allow seniors to age in place, age in home, building community centers for seniors so that they have that connection and belonging, again, is far less costly to our healthcare system than having people having to go into long-term care because they don't have the services at home. It's interesting. And uh, yeah, despite the announcement yesterday, I... Uh I just said, boy, that's a lot of stuff that you've got to get done in a short period of time. So I appreciate your thoughts on this as well. And again, if people want to uh, learn more on your thoughts, they can go to www.bcgreens.ca. Sonia, thank you for your time this afternoon. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Two o'clock hour. I'm Rob Faye in for Jill at three o'clock. Chaz will sit in the big old chair and take you right through your afternoon drive. One of the things that I love talking about is technology. As you heard earlier in the show, we were talking about artificial intelligence and how we can uh, protect, I guess you would say, potentially use it for good and also to protect ourselves. Andy Barrar tech and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com, kind enough to join me. We get you on the show during the day. How are you today, Andy? I'm good, Rob. How are you doing? I'm okay. I, I love having this conversation because I think we're watching something to de- develop and evolve in real time right now. And artificial intelligence has the capabilities to do a lot of good. Can we talk about the positives that AI might be able to bring to the average Joe? Well, you know, it's, it's life-changing. A lot of people don't realize, but there's just so much AI that we're currently using. If you ever use Netflix or even YouTube and those recommended engines that kind of seem to know what you like, or even on Spotify, if you listen to some certain music and then suddenly, you know, it plays a song that you also like, and that that's AI. And we just kind of don't realize it because it's been working in the back end for society. But it's when ChatGPT came on, on the scene, Rob, that really changed everything because we actually had a chance to use AI and it's changed society a lot. You have to wonder if the college essay is dead or not because AI has gotten so good that they now have tools. There's this website, I don't know if you know this, Rob, it's called Zero GPT. And so you could take text and put it in there and it will tell you if it was written by AI or not or by by the tone of its voice and such. So. Hmm. I have never seen anything change society so quickly other than maybe the internet itself in the mid-90s. We knew it was going to be a big thing, and it was, and the same thing is happening with AI. I was trying to put it into context as to how big a moment this is in society. I think you nailed it. It's like the creation of the internet, but now we've fast-forwarded 30, 35 years to where we are today. You know, one thing that I was thinking about that it kind of reminds me is think about the, the calculator. And how revolutionary that must have been when it first came on the scene. I did some digging, Rob, and the first calculator was, or arithmetic machine, was created in 1640. 
And you could only imagine when somebody debuted that, it was actually a French philosopher and mathematician who invented it. But you could only imagine what people were thinking, wow, this machine can calculate numbers. Now, we're still doing math today, but just think of how society has changed with the likes of having a calculator at our disposal and then you know, spreadsheets and, and all the other technology that came after it. So AI is, is on that, that same kind of level. The question is, what is like society going to look like? What are jobs going to look like in the future? There are so many knowledge-based jobs right now, which we were told to go to school and get a degree and get these jobs, that AI can do a better job. And that's where I think a lot of people are, are getting concerned about, uh, is like, what does the future hold for jobs, uh, especially in the knowledge-based economy with AI? Well, I wanted to talk about healthcare. And, you know, I could say scientific research, but they kind of go hand in hand. Um, I think of healthcare and I think of being able to diagnose diseases, develop treatment plans. I, I just, I know that, you know, for example, somebody goes in and they need a test and it can take days, but it can also take weeks. AI might be able to really compact the time that you get results to get treatment to essentially maybe even save your life. Well, it's funny you mentioned that, Rob, because I have been fascinated by healthcare and AI, and you're seeing a lot of these new companies are coming out that utilize AI in the healthcare space. For example, we all get our blood tested, but there is a company called Inside Tracker that I recently used, and they'll scan your blood, they scan all your hormones, but instead of just saying, oh, you're in the optimal zone or, you know, or something gets flagged. It'll tell you AI based on the AI of where you should be in the optimal zone for your age and for your sex. And it can really find point, you know, where you should look at things in your diet based upon, you know, what it's getting from your blood work. But also you can also add in your DNA to that. And it takes those two data sets, both your DNA, your predisposition to how you react to maybe certain foods or, and your hormone levels with your lifestyle and your diet. And then it can give you recommendations on how you should live your life. It is so personalized, so catered, but the back end is all powered by AI. Yeah, some people aren't going to want to go to that length, but I think, you know, eventually it's going to happen. Andy, let's switch gears. I want to talk a little cybersecurity because a lot of people will just assume this is about passwords and whatnot. But I got into it a little bit this morning just before I came on the air and I didn't realize this and maybe it didn't click, but now it does. AI can help with things like compliance, with regulations for businesses, because in addition to, you know, just protecting your data, there's a lot of people that don't realize when they've stepped over the line when it comes to the matter of law. And yet AI can keep you within the parameters. Well, absolutely. And that's the, the, the beauty of AI is how it can help businesses. Like if you're an entrepreneur, AI is like your best friend because yes. it can do so much. You need a logo. Say you're going to start a company today, tomorrow, and you need a logo. You can get AI to make you that logo. You need some copywriting done. You can get AI to help that. You need to draft a contract and some type of contract for your first employee. AI can help you with that. Now, how good is it? Well, you know, you're still going to have to have professionals look it over, but it can really expedite the time that it takes to get a lot of this stuff up and running. You're even seeing lawyers now use it, but it's a hit and miss. This is so new, Rob, that we have to remember, this is the worst AI will ever be. Like, it's like, think about the internet in the mid nineties and how, how much it's changed since then. That's kind of with AI, because it just hit the scene and we think, oh my God, this is amazing. It's only going to get better and it's going to have a greater and greater impact on society, uh, especially in business. Okay, one more for you, Andy. And I'm, I'm going to have to play both sides of the coin here just to say that we didn't just make this an infomercial for AI. Let's talk about bias and discrimination. I, somebody's got a program, but at least initially, how do we keep the lack of control, the bias, the discrimination away from what could be a real valuable tool? 
It has to be transparency, Rob. These companies, ChatGPT and all these other big companies that are using AI, they have to open it up and let people look on how they're, how are they, what inputs and data inputs are they putting inside there? Because there might be biases in there that they might not even notice. And you need outside eyes and ears looking at that to make sure that that doesn't happen. Because even something like, um, artificial like image recognition. They have like these CCTV cameras everywhere in society now. But with AI, they can actually detect someone. So if you have, say, have a warrant for your arrest and you, suddenly you come up into one of these cameras, it can automatically flag you. And so we have to have bigger conversations on what kind of society do you want? Because at one point that seems great that you could find a, a criminal in a public place. But what about if you want to protest in the future and you're worried about cameras getting you and then the AI flagging you for going to a certain protest? So these kind of discussions, we need that regulatory framework and we need to have conversations on how we want to use AI in the future. That is going to be a very slippery slope, Andy. Sound, almost sounds like a old uh, Tom Cruise movie, if you will. <laughs> yeah, actually, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> it's like what was ever in science fiction is now really coming true. It's, yeah. it's, it's pretty crazy. Well, thank you for shining some light on this. Like I said, I didn't want to be a, a guy just banging the drum by myself. So I love hearing the energy and th enthusiasm that you have as well. So uh, let's talk again, Andy. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Rob.